Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Neil, founder and CEO of Zio Health, and Nicole, investor at Cherry Ventures. Today, we're going to be discussing what the benefits of being a scientist entrepreneur are. But first of all, can we just get a elevator pitch from the both of you about what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so Zio Health is a uh, we basically developed a biosensor technology that allows us to sense different parameters in different bodily fluids. And so we're using that technology for a therapeutic drug monitoring device for, um, to improve uh, drug treatment outcomes. Yeah, uh, and I'm Nicole. I am a biologist by training um, and kind of entered the world through medical devices before then um, joining uh, into venture. Uh, and so prior to Cherry, I was at Atomico um, and Cherry investing in a lot of the very similar and same things, a lot of like healthcare, um, some B2B software, and, and of course, life sciences and biology as well. And Nicole, prior to being an investor, you had started a company as well. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah. Um, so I was uh, working through like my master's in neuroscience and doing a lot of stuff in brain tumor research uh, and kind of decided that, look, actually, I don't think I want to do my PhD. I don't want to do an MD anymore. Uh, and so was talking to my professor about some of the other options. Um, and at the time he was building a medical device company. Uh, and so I kind of was helping out the postdoc a little bit, the figuring out how you can spin this out. And so as a result of that, spent quite a bit of time in tech transfer and the innovation office, uh, just learning a bit about, you know, how to actually build a, a company and a medical device uh, startup. Awesome. And Neil, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of arrived at being at Zio Health? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, I was a medical doctor beforehand. And um, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was a medical doctor beforehand. And um, so whilst practicing, I found myself uh, very interested in improving the efficiency of processes. And so, especially coming from the US into the UK health system, there was a lot of areas which could be uh, more efficient. But a lot of the times, um, the, the, you know, the people I would speak to in the hospitals would put it down to the cost of um, changing a process. However, um, uh, what I basically did at the time was uh, basically tried to prove my theories, collected data. I would drag you know, my roommates into the hospital after um, our shift and then um, implemented one of the processes within the hospital. Uh, and I suppose that kind of led me to think about other areas that could be improved. And um, so as a, um, what's it called, as a backup, I kind of applied for an MBA and went to do an MBA. But in the first month of that, I actually founded this company, uh, which to to bring basically blood testing out of the lab and to the point of care. Awesome. Uh, Nicole, in, in your day-to-day, -day, do you see a lot of kind of physician or scientist entrepreneurs who first do MBAs or do you see it more that they kind of come directly from clinic or di directly from labs and, and start companies? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a mix. Um, there are, of course, like a lot of, uh, and especially now in the UK and in some of these like great life science hubs where a lot of, you know, PhDs and postdocs are just spinning right out of universities, um, which is really exciting and, and great to see. Um, and then, of course, yeah, like 
you know, very similar to yourself, Neil, a lot of also like clinicians or like former clinicians who are also just very interested in exploring something different. Maybe they've been in industry and pharma for a while as well. So some, you know, former like pharma execs as well, kind of coming into the startup space, which is also you know, super interesting, a very different type of founder. Um, and then, of course, yeah, we have also some folks who ended up going, doing an MBA, just trying to learn a little bit more on the commercial side and bringing a bit of like a, a different entrepreneurial view. Um, and I think, of course, you know, for all those different combos, uh, like a lot of, you know, benefits um, to each of those things. Um, but I would say like on in general, um, given like the stage that I'm currently spending the most time in, it's definitely more on the kind of like PhD postdoc spin outside uh, that I'm seeing most. Can, can we have a general discussion on like what what are some of the difficulties um, you've seen or you experience essentially um, starting a company but coming from like a more scientific background? Well, I suppose one. Well, let's just going back on the topic about the yeah. MBA. I suppose one of the main reasons I, you know, I went for an MBA was because I actually being so um, involved in medicine for so many years. And this was around seven, eight years ago. It wasn't that common to have innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, you know, topics and conversation in the hospital. Mm. So it was more about being so in the dark about how to start a company or how to um, do anything but medicine. So it was, you know, I thought at the time medicine, I mean, an MBA was the best option. Um, however, nowadays, it does seem like there's much more, many more opportunities and awareness of uh, entrepreneurship in hospitals that mm. um, I'm not sure I would do an MBA anymore um, if I was coming out of you know, medicine at, at this point in time. Um, I think for me, one of the challenges uh, going from medicine to starting a company I, I'm trying to think I think uh, you know there's so many over the years that pop up especially when you're starting a, a medical device company but um, right at the beginning I think one of the challenges was the, the maybe the networking it was very difficult to network with people who um, were outside the medical world because all I kind of knew at the time was mm. medicine, um, you know, pitching and what people wanted to see um, was very difficult to to understand. But, you know, it's a, it's a learning curve. And I guess the more networking you do and the more times you put yourself into these uh, um, challenging uh, environments, it you just learn. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I would totally agree. I think it is that mindset of... Um, you know, kind of who are you selling to and like who is like your your new customer, I think. Like obviously in academia, you're presenting to like your peers and, you know, obviously at a certain point if you're a postdoc or a PhD, mm. you know, it's kind of like um, serving your, uh, I guess, like your students and kind of helping them get to like the next stage in their degree and their like academic journey versus, you know, when you're building a company, all of a sudden the end user could either be like a patient or a consumer or, yeah. you know, an, another business. And I think that like change in mindset of like, how do I like storytell and pitch it so that it's, understandable to them and I think you know I agree like um, when we had to fundraise as well um, for medical device businesses it was just so incredibly hard to try to convince someone um, that this was a viable commercial business because uh, you've just fallen in love with the technology and the science and you're like well clearly this is going to yeah. benefit 
you know, like patients and, yeah. and every, you know, everyone. Um, but I think from now kind of being in venture for a few years and kind of understanding, um, and I guess is where the MBA helps, right? Is like kind of understanding from like a, a business side of things, like what, what people look for. I think it's incredibly difficult to kind of like translate the risk of your product uh, as a scientist and for me as an academic into a commercial risk for whoever's kind of giving us money. Um, and so I think that was probably the most difficult thing for me as well. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so b both of you were building medical devices or you are mm -hmm. building a medical device, essentially. Um, and so it, it seems like it, it would make sense for someone who has some sort of medical knowledge to be building a medical device. Is that usually not the case, though? Do You see just like a lot, a lot of medical device founders being non-medical, non-scientists. Um, so I think for teams, definitely probably like someone who's like quite clinical, I would say for medical device. Um, if it's more of like a hardware for supporting life sciences, I think that's actually where you see a lot more engineers because at the end of the day, it's much more of like an engineering problem. Uh, on the founding team, you, you might have like a scientist who obviously has experienced that like research and, and lab issue before. Um, but I would say probably more on the engineering side, but yeah, medical device, definitely probably someone who's very clinical because I think also that's the fastest way you can get something into trials at least when kind of we were spitting something out of of my lab um you know working with like a surgeon who you know was doing the actual tumor resection in theater and so you know for our device obviously one it lended credibility to the to the product um but on the other hand just kind of like leveraging that as like a potential way to kind of start clinical trials um and as like a route into that i think that was very helpful for us at least yeah i i definitely agree i think um now because we're in you know clinical studies and going through the regulatory process it is it does give this startup a credibility mm. if we you know if I mean, for us, I guess the CEO is the is the medical doctor, but it does help credibility when you're reaching out to these sites mm. and talking about the device and its potential. So I do I do agree it does definitely benefit. I I, I see what you mean. So it's almost like when you're building a medical device or medical product, you have this product development, but then you also have regulatory development, right? And um, mm -hmm. it's it's the same as like not having a CTO and having to outsource your entire um, product development, which is probably a red flag for, for VCs. Um, but I, I, I guess it's also a red flag in the medical world to have to outside, outsource like your entire clinical development, your entire regulatory process, because you have no one internal who can who can like actually give any sort of footing to that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, I think it really just does depend on like the type of product you're building, right? Mm -hmm. I, obviously, if like the core of like the product, I mean, for something like like yours, Neil, where you know it's um, obviously a medical device, and you know you have like your your you know, your expertise in this. Um, and it's a core IP, then definitely will help with credibility for, you know, for you to be leading it. Um, but if it is more of like a, an application, right, that you're building, you know, for like consumers, um, I don't think it 100% kind of needs to be like the CEO who has that expertise. Mm. You can kind of hire for it. And I mean, even in the early days um, of like technical development, right, it's probably fine if you're just building, you know, more of like a consumer app um, to maybe outsource some of that or, or even use something that's a bit more um, like low, no code, right? You can mm. kind of test it out a lot faster. Um, so also, I think it really just depends on like the type of product uh, that you're building too. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. I, I, I think, um, you know, you can look at it stage by stage, mm -hmm. I guess, during the product development and the R&D, it's not really that beneficial for 
the, one of the individuals to be a medical doctor. I think, mm. I think you can, you know, there's, there's a lot of clinicians these days who are um, advising startups, right? I, I think you can get that level of expertise from, from advisors. I mean, even for us right now, I think, um, you know, I practiced what, seven, eight years ago. And so obviously the, 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 yeah. the health system has moved forward since then. And um, I'm kind of out of touch right with with what's going on in the hospitals so for us we do also rely on um advisors uh but i think the benefit is that when someone internally doesn't understand something the advisors are saying i can clarify and explain it in more detail um and i suppose the you know the other areas are that during this seven, eight years, you're kind of building up. Yeah, we, I've lost touch of um, being in the hospital, but um, I'm surrounded by doctors, right? I mm. went to medical school. I you know, did, I practice in the UK and stuff. So, so I have this network. And so whenever we need something quickly answered, uh, I can just reach out and get that answer quickly. Yeah, it's definitely that, yeah. that translation that is super helpful. Yeah. What are some of the things that you wish you knew when um, you started your companies? Now, you know, Nicole, having been in the industry for some time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, to your, I mean, a lot of different things. I think one definitely is like kind of how um, you do that translation and like finding people who, who can help you with that translation from, you know, of course, the actual core of the product and like the science and how do you actually make that like a bit simpler and a bit more tangible for someone who, you know, just does not have all the context that you have um, and kind of pitching it in a way that's not like overly um, like technical almost um, because I think it's really easy to lose people, right. Who don't come from like a similar background. And so mm. I think, yeah, that, that help and support in terms of understanding, okay, like, you know, for someone who does not come from at all the same place that I'm from, how do I translate that? Right. Um, whether it's for like a, actually for BD and for your customers, I think it's super important, but then also on like the venture side, right? In terms of like, you know, what's important um, to an investor and like, how do they underwrite risk and how do they think about, you know, investing capital? How do their business models work, right? Because obviously again, very different from like what we're used to, which is grant applications. Yeah. Um, and so I think it is that like overall translation of like, you know, understanding and finding the right people um, who I could ask um, hey, like, you know, how would you underwrite the risk of my business or, or my technology? Or like, hey, if you are buying something like this, what's your budget? And like, what are you looking for? Or what do you need to help convince the rest of your company that like we are, you know, a good investment or um, a good supplier? So I think that would probably be one of like the the main things for me um, that I, I wish I would have learned a little bit sooner. So I'll, I'll almost like approaching it from like a getting advice point of view before uh, actually like delivering your pitch per se. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, just understanding like the different languages, right? I think like as, as researchers were, you know, to your point of at the time when you're in your lab in med school, you don't really know mm. what else is out there. Um, and so just like taking the time to like understand the languages of these like different um, industries and trying to figure out how to how to navigate that and almost like, yeah, pick up a, a whole other language. I see. And and in terms of like the venture space, mm. um, do you think it's possible for a non-subject matter expert, like a non-scientist, non-doctor to just basically say, hey, I want to build this medical device. I don't know like anything about really this area besides I'm passionate about it. Um, just raise a lot of money and then hire in the expertise. What do you guys think about that? 
I mean, I I think I think it's been done right, and like I think like there are people who yeah, yeah have have gone and built big businesses like that, and I think like what's interesting is then like who. Like, what is the persona of that person who's doing it, right? Like, are they just mm. like, exceptionally commercial, very good at, like, the business language or, like, you know, pitching or whatever it is? Um, and Because I think then if you find someone who's very complimentary, and I think, like, even for early stage teams, right? Like, sometimes, you know, I will come across um, companies where the founders are very different in terms of, like, their skill sets, but, of course, together. It's obviously, it's very probably obvious, um, but together, right? It just works out very well. And I think at the end of the day, I don't know that it matters a whole lot on you know who yeah. had the original idea, as long as you kind of come together and yeah, quite complementary. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you, you know I'm not technical, so I I didn't build the tech, um, but. For us, it is, you know, there's so many components in the technology, the electronics, the hardware, the firmware, the, you know, the science, the the chemical reactions that occur on the, on the sensor itself. Um, for us, I do think it's, it's not really about who, you know, who had the idea. It's about building that team and build and getting those individuals early on well, but why, why, to, why couldn't um you know a guy from mckinsey just like literally say hey like i i really like the idea of like like biomarkers and like blood blood testing to be at the point of care so like i'm just gonna start this company i have no medical knowledge and like i'm gonna i'm gonna go make ZioHealth health <laughs> 2.0 like and raise a bunch of money for it like why, why is it better that you know you're a doctor oh uh, okay no so um i i don't I, yeah, I don't think that it necessarily matters to be a doctor, to be honest. I don't, I don't think that had any influence in, in the beginning um, while build, building the tech. Um, I think it just helps uh, directly, you know, for us, it's about what targets are we measuring and what's most impactful with the, with the actual biomarkers that we can actually measure, right? So it's more about forming a strategy in terms of, what should we enter the market with first mm. and what comes after that? Um, and I think that, you know, that's something that we've developed over the years by networking, understanding the different markets and understanding the risk to the technology for different biomarkers that we can measure. And so I, yeah, maybe not so much in the early stages, but I think it matters, uh, based, uh, you know, what, what, when you're getting closer to, um, to getting into the market yeah exactly i don't know i like i i do think that there is there's definitely power in the fact that like you know you, you yourself having you know been a medical doctor like i think you you saw like a very uh, like you had like i don't know like unique insight or like something that no one else could have, have really seen right and i think this is kind of what potentially i mean i don't know exactly right kind of like what motivated you to do this 100 percent. but i think it is that kind of like um like very i don't know specific viewpoint that you had and like that probably experience of like the problem every single day right that kind of like then forces you to go and explore something um to like solve that problem and i think um why maybe like the teams um are much more important sometimes in terms of like complementary skill sets because you know even if you have like a special insight into something that like no one else has i think if you can find other people to kind of come around you to help you commercialize or like build the engineering side of things i think you still need to start from that all this to say i think you need like a, like something that no one else has really access to right to kind of also build a, a product yeah yeah i yeah i i also think that whilst you're um you know whilst you're building your the product there is a lot of opportunities and in terms of partnerships that can help develop the product as well as 
help enter the market. And I think, um, you know, even even when you when it comes to grant applications, you you know you want the partners, the right partners for the application. You want to know that uh, you can actually commercialize the product or the innovation as well, right? So I think from that perspective, uh, being a doctor does help. Um, so you can bring everyone together to bring the right people together to, um, you know, reduce the risk to commercialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I see your point, Neil. Like, it might not actually be that important to to be of a medical or scientific background. Um, I th- I, th- I think what he means is that probably like the day to day of getting the initial products off the ground, it may not have been um, critical to be a doctor, right? I, I, it could just be that being a doctor gives you credibility because possibly VCs do think that. Like they think like, oh, um, if someone's a scientist or a doctor, they've kind of interfaced the problem more. They're more capable of building the solution. But it could be that it's not, it's not actually help helpful at all. Uh, it could be that um, yeah, or like you're very narrow-minded in terms of like what you think the solution has to be. You're very yeah. opinionated in building that specific solution, and then it yeah. almost like prevents you from thinking outside the box. Yeah, yeah. And it it could just be that you just need to be sharp, and we just see more of those characters in medicine or in programs where there are high barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Was that was that along the lines of what you were saying earlier? Um. I, I guess you could see it like that, but I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I think that, you know, going back to my point earlier, I do think it's beneficial for certain stages, um, but I don't think it's necessary to have a medical doctor right at the beginning. And yeah. and that's specific to, um, to, to, to my startup because, you know, we, in the beginning, it really doesn't matter what the application is, right? Because you're developing the technology. Mm-hmm the application is really focused on the biomarkers or, you know, whatever we're measuring. Mm. So there, for us, there was like a, you know, a two, three year period where we just focus on developing the tech. It didn't matter what the um, application was. Um, and now, obviously, the last few years, I guess two and a half, three years, we've been developing the, um, the application for uh, uh, full market. And that's when it's been really helpful not just, you know, obviously for clinical trials and getting into mm-hmm. hospitals and, but also just having those conversations, going to, you know, NHS conferences. Um, and it's just, it's just been much easier to understand the problems in the hospital and then um, bring that information into the company. Mm. Yeah. And also, I guess like for, depend, again, depending on your customer and your product as mm. well, it's also, it's probably super helpful when you're actually selling to someone, right? Like I think the way that um, people who have, you know, maybe been doctors, the way that you, you might sell this to like a peer um, or someone else from pharma, it was probably quite different, you know, than someone who of course maybe comes from more of like industry um, mm. and, you know, maybe their, their sales style might be a bit um, different, right? Yeah. And yeah. might scare some people off in healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You also do have a certain level of um, trust, I guess, mm-hmm. between doctors, and that does help. What are sort of some of the key differences you see when you're analyzing companies from the like more traditional science medical entrepreneurs to to the kind of commercial entrepreneurs in the healthcare space? Yeah, um, I mean, there's 
So I think so many different things um, that we can kind of like touch on here. But I think, um, you know, coming from like a research background or like in any sort of like being in a lab or in STEM, right, you're kind of forced to do a lot of like test, like hypothesis testing um, and a lot of like iteration, like very data driven. And I think that really helps, um, especially the early stages of company development when you're like really trying to understand like what the problem is um, and kind of develop your your product um, in very quick cycles. Right. And so I think like that's actually been very beneficial. Of course, like, you know, you also see this in more traditional kind of like B2B software companies as well. Um, but I think on the, yeah, I think if you yeah, come from a research background, I think it's just very like core to how you like do things and how you operate. Um, and you're also kind of you know, used to, I think like your experiments failing quite often, right? And so I don't mm. I don't think it really like phased um, me that much, at least in the very beginning. Cause I was like, oh, right. Like all my experiments in the lab also, I, was, I had yeah. to repeat them yeah. all the time. So I think that was probably um, like some interesting differences. Um, and then, uh, of, of course, um, on on the other side, right? I think just just how do you become like better, like at selling and like mm. thinking about like commercial endpoints, right? And actually, like how quickly you have to build like a viable business, um, because of course, when you're in academia, you're just you know researching for the for the love of it, and you have longer timelines, um, and your goals are different. Yeah. Um, versus you know, obviously, one year in the world of startups is like an eternity. Um, so I think you just have to kind of like adjust a little bit, um, your expectations. And I think the other thing that um. I see sometimes as well and definitely like so you fall in love with like the science and the tech and even if it's not a viable commercial product um you don't really want to like change right or kind mm. of move away from it and so I think there's more of a like um sometimes and again like guilty myself of I just really want to make this work um yeah. and I'm not as willing to I think pivot or make a change um as quickly as I can I, I've seen that um inside the company as well mm-hmm. I think uh uh, yeah, there's a lot of habits, I guess, that come from academia into the company. Um, there's also there's also sometimes an issue with, uh, let's say, uh, scientists generally have a very high threshold for um, what they see as, uh, let's say, like perfect, mm-hmm. you know, and so it a, a product doesn't have to be perfect to be commercialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's trying to show that you know trying to educate on that level of that level that we need as a product to enter the um market i see so there's essentially um i guess two components of this there's like the pre-product market fit company where you're you're going through those iterations to reach a product that can actually help people and that people actually want and then there's a second point where it's like okay how do i grow the company now and I guess what um, you're essentially saying is that with the science, like medical entrepreneurs, they may actually be better at this hypothesis iteration testing stage, which is like pre-product market fit. Um, and then following that on the commercialization, you might actually want more of a commercial entrepreneur. Yeah. Or I guess the, going back to the why, like I think a very complementary team is so important from the beginning, right? Because I think as your hypothesis testing, it's also important to, you know, also have someone who is very commercially minded and thinking like, hey, Okay, great. Like none of the product is changing. Like, does it make it better or worse for like our end user or our customer? Um, and yeah. then kind of like closing, you know, that feedback loop internally too, right? Which is, I think, also another big challenge for startups in the space, right? Is you often have um, companies that are quite quite a big dichotomy in terms of who you hire, because um, you mm-hmm. have you know some researchers um, and maybe some technologists and engineers, right? And I think like again, maybe the the theme here is like all this like communication and translation is right. It's like how do you mm-hmm. close the loop between all these different people who ideally ultimately like speak very different languages um, in a way that um, is quick and commercially viable. 
Yeah, because we, we, we were talking about those time adjustments that need to be made when you kind of move from uh, the clinical and scientific space into the commercial space. Um, and then how do we balance that with um, that perfection level? Because there is an element of things needing to be too standard, right, in, in healthcare. Like, you can't really move fast and break things. You can't really ship product that's not quite there. So, so how do we reach that balance? I think that's also kind of overlaps with the culture of, you know, of the team in general. I, I guess we we make sure um, we we're transparent about all these changes within the interview process, and then once people come in, you know, what we we've we tend to you know accept individuals who have, you know, who are already aware of those challenges in startups. And so when they come join the team, they are kind of immersed into this world and they're kind of, they, they learn quite rapidly, um, I think, to, to, to accommodate for those um, differences. I, I do think, you know, for us, we have the whole uh, regulatory um, pathway set. We have the criteria that we need to meet. And so making everyone aware of these expectations of what, you know, mm. what the technology needs to meet in terms of specifications, um, that, that also helps. Um, yeah, so we don't go beyond that and we, we always meet the minimum requirement. Yeah, and I think from like the, I guess, investor view as well in terms of like how do you balance it, I think, you know, this is where it's really important to, I guess, when you are finding or approaching a VC to like, I guess, maybe find like a good fit within the fund for you right mm -hmm. someone who's like spent time in the industry because then they understand that there's nuance right and they understand the sales cycles are different they understand the regulatory is different they understand maybe where there are risks and so then you know it's a bit easier for them to also kind of understand you know how to underwrite um the potential commercial risk or the product risk of a of a business and i think sometimes it, it can be quite tricky um if you don't have, find like the right investor match when you're pitching to someone yeah. and if they don't understand some of the nuance i think actually and this happened you know to us too right you kind of just get passed on um because mm. you know there's just no understanding of the nuance and like regulatory you just say regulatory and they're like oh my god class your medical device that's going to take ages um and you know maybe there are some interesting precedents right in our market um and that was the case for us there were really good precedents and so that's why we felt like we could kind of like you know squeeze the timeline down and get to market a little bit faster um but yeah there were just some some people who just um didn't quite understand that and weren't on the same page so i think that's also something else in terms of expectation setting um from the investor side um and finding someone who yeah, it wants to take time to dig dig into the the details. I want to come back to that fundraising conversation because I think that will be interesting. But um, in in what you guys have seen, when do when do scientists like not fit in the equation in startups? You know, like in hiring, when has it not worked out with someone who comes from like a STEM clinical background that you've seen where you know they've been in a startup and things just are not like equating what are what are the kind of profiles or, or personalities where you feel like this is not balancing out because of because of maybe the way that people are trained in science or or in medicine i think um i think one of the the key things which um we try and avoid is uh when when um I think you, you touched on this before, but um, the speed of what the uh, startup goes, I think when someone ten, 
joins a team, they might become overwhelmed with, you know, a milestone being two months away. Um, mm. They might feel it's not achievable because they're used to, uh, you know, a, a, a longer timeline. And um, that, you know, that, that also, the perfection thing also factors into that because they feel like they have to make it perfect by yeah. that two month milestone. Um, so it's, you know, touching on these points during the interview process does help so that yeah. um, no one gets overwhelmed. But during the interviews, you do also notice that um, people just say, hey, like yeah, I can definitely do yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's difficult at times. Yeah, definitely. It's like, how do you want to spend your time? Right. Like if like your true passion is in like the R&D and like you're building yeah. a company at the early stages, it's a lot of R&D and it's great. Um, but, you know, obviously the business grows, you know, do you want to continue spending your time doing that or, or do you want to be more commercial? Right. Um, because yeah. the business requires it. And so if if you don't want to be commercial and you would just love to continue exploring R&D, you know, maybe you're not the you know, maybe you don't take the lead. Uh, maybe you kind of just you know head up the, the scientific department of, of your company. Or yeah. Also, if you're a professor as well, right? I think that's also another thing on the VC side is like if you're kind of half committed, um, or like you're you're supporting a company, you're one of the founders, but you're maybe still in academia. I think that's also quite difficult, and I think we see a lot of those professors end up yeah. kind of taking a step back. But even in the kind of R and D side, I guess things are different in a startup than in the academic space. So it's more almost like of this possibility mindset, where it's like we're looking for the people where um, we say, "Hey, like you need to do this thing in two months," and they might be thinking in their head, "This is not possible," but they need to say to everyone else, like. I'm going to make it possible, right? Like, yeah, I, I'm yeah. going to, like, yeah. I don't know, do whatever I can do to try my best and make it possible. And even if they fail, be okay with it. Yeah. yeah but, but, yeah. No, and I think that's why, like, mm. you know, the types of people who end up either staying in academia or going to startups, I think the ones who end up going to startups and the scientists who end up going to startups, I think they're um, they're very, like, you know, you're excited about innovation and, like, doing it much more quickly than in academia. And I think, like, you're also, um, you know, willing to, I think, push yourself a little bit more as well yeah. in terms of, like, okay, I can definitely do this in, like, two months, um, but also I can create a totally new way to do it um, that's not bound by any restrictions of, like, oh, I won't get yeah. funding for this, right? Because I think also in academia, you know, yes, you have, like, the freedom to do research and whatever you mm. want um but as long as whatever you want gets you grant funding right so i think yeah. that's also a bit of a, a difference here and why maybe the the researchers and the scientists and clinicians who kind of end up in startups are maybe just a bit more inclined naturally um to want to push a little bit yeah i mean we talked about um you know why scientists as employees would fail but it would be really interesting to know on a macro level why science entrepreneurs running companies typically fail? Good question. Um, I think it sometimes it is a little bit of like the, you know, you realize, um, yeah, it's where you want to spend time, right? You can maybe you realize that like, actually, look, this is a really great product, but, you know, maybe along the way of building this product, mm. I've gotten the chance to explore other things and maybe I want to go in and do that instead, right? And so maybe it's just, because you're given so much freedom, yeah. you then pick something else that's like a new passion project, right? Which is also super exciting because that can, mm. of course, end up resulting in a, a whole other company. Um, I think it could also be that, look, you know, it's that expectation, like, you know, for especially for first-time founders, right? Just not knowing what, yeah. um, you know, being a venture-backed company means and the time scales and the deadlines and kind of how quickly you have to grow. You maybe also just decide that, look, like, there are other routes and there are other sources of funding that mean that I can build yeah. a business that I want to build, but just not on these crazy 
you know, timelines, mm. right? And I think that's also something else that is a very like different change um, from academia. Yeah, I I also think the communication, um, mm. you know, the different languages that different individuals in a in a company would, uh, especially a science company, um, would sp- would you know would communicate. I guess um, it's more, it's like understanding and connecting everyone on the team and aligning them so that everyone's working towards this shared goal. I yeah. think um, in academia, it's you, you know, you are working on your own project and you don't develop necessarily those communication skills. And I see you know, that, that, I guess, also um, makes it much more difficult to also just fundraise in general. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've, I've also seen um, uh, some individuals found it difficult. Um, you know, to to network and to fundraise, not because they weren't capable, is more just because they lack the confidence. Mm, yeah, it's such a different way of thinking about things yeah. entirely. And like, yeah, if you aren't able to, yeah, like understand how people underwrite risk, and like you can't raise. I mean, that's yeah, it's so unfortunate, but it definitely you see it happen a lot. Well, I I, I think that's an interesting topic, right? Because from what Nicole is saying, essentially, like most companies fail because founder management, like the company dies when the founders don't want to do it anymore. Right. So it's actually like, is it the point of failure being we can't raise or just like, hey, like, I'm tired of doing this. Which point defines it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they probably kind of feed into each other a little bit as well, Mm. right? I think if you kind of keep going out to market and keep hearing, you know, our native rates kind of bridging and bridging and bridging, I mean, that also, you know, Mm. it it takes a lot out of you, right? Yeah. To kind of like fundraise and it's so much time and so much energy and, um, and yeah. So I think there's definitely kind of feeds on each other a little bit, but I, I definitely do... And, and look, at the end of the day, too, right, for, for venture funds, like you can't back every company. And yeah. you know, it's also part of a natural cycle that not everyone is going to make it. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I think a bit of both. Um, but I would say that at the early stages, you know, you do see a lot of, you know, these earlier stage, more like technical teams that take longer to get to market. You know, it's just like how many VCs, at least in, in Europe, right, are who want to invest in Europe mm. um, and the UK? uh like want to operate on those timelines right like what is like the structure of your fund that allows you to do that um which then also means that you can make fewer investments in the space and so then you know not everyone gets not everyone gets to raise yeah yeah and i guess that's why um there is a lot of opportunities for university spin outs right um because they've already spent years on this research. Mm. And so there's a shorter time to commercialization and shorter times for returns for uh, VC investors. Mm. And I think, I think generally in, in the UK, and yeah, there's a, there's a high amount of investment going into university spin-out. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the pros and cons when you, when you evaluate spin-out versus non-spin-out? Yeah, so I mean, I think yeah, the the largest topic, or I think the one that people talk the most about, is probably like, mm. what is the ownership, right? That like yeah. the tech transfer offices take, and I think like you know, in in the UK, there are lots of people who have spoken about this and have like written about this, and you know, mm. notoriously high, right? Which then make it really difficult um, for you know private venture investors to actually then want to invest because of the way that the cap table is structured and the ownership that the founders have relative to these tech transfer offices, and so I think that's one thing. That's really yeah. difficult, um, for sure. And then the other is, you know, when you actually then spin it out, right? It's great that you have, to your point, Neil, like to the, the technical validation. And so it is just more about, okay, how do I just quickly, you know, bring it from the lab 
try it out in one commercial use case. And, you know, ideally you can do that very fast versus, you know, if you're not spitting out, um, you have to do all the technical validation yourself, do a little bit of commercial validation mm. with the tech. And so it just gets a bit um, longer, the, the timelines. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess we weren't a, a university spin out, mm. but, you know, we had these opportunities right at the beginning to work with universities in the UK. And one of the main reasons we stayed away was actually because of the um, the cap table issues, which mm. would arise later. And IP. Yeah. 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 Do you regret it? Uh no, I, I guess because we've made it, but yeah. you know, uh, I guess if we hadn't, then <laughs> maybe. <that would> probably... <laughs> yeah, but you just also see like you know some of these um of these companies, right? Where like if it's on a university spin out, you know, at, at a certain point, it also does make sense to partner with universities and yeah. like labs, right? So yeah. obviously they can do some of that validation for you, uh, and it's not gonna be you know on your own time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and I, I suppose um, for us. Uh, you know, my, my co-founder was a PhD and mm. we did have those networks in universities. Mm. And so we do have research partners now, which obviously validate our technology. Um, but I think in the early stages, we kind of stayed, stayed away from using their labs and um, would just run, you know, ask them for like advice rather than um, the use of their resources. Awesome. And moving into this conversation about how to fundraise as a um, science slash medical entrepreneur, um, it would be really interesting to kind of know both of your points of view because we're we're kind of sat on like different sides of the table, I guess. Like people say like VC is the dark side, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, so I've been told. <laughs> yeah. Um but I, I mean from from both of your perspectives, Neil, are you raising right now? Uh we are raising. You're raising. Yeah. yeah. So it, it'd be really interesting to know from both of your perspectives, like Nicole, what's like the kind of most absurd absurd like conversation you've had with a founder where you're like like this like does not medically scientifically make any sense like obviously you don't have to name names so it'd be interesting to know and then on neil's side um like what's the most absurd conversation you've had with like a non-industry uh, investor yeah um, so, I mean, I don't know it's, if it's like absurd, but I think it is just like a little bit of this translation problem again, right? It's like I've talked to some founders who are building, you know, great products and great businesses, but I think they're just, it's the awareness of like whether or not this is like a venture backable business or whether mm. you should just explore alternatives to funding, right? And I think, you know, because you're, you don't have the exposure, you don't understand what like I'm saying to you when I tell you that like, you yeah. know, our fund, you know, life cycle is this and this is, you know, what I'm looking mm. for in a return and because that jargon just doesn't make any sense. I mean, didn't really make any sense to me when I was also trying to fundraise. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think that is where there's like this yeah translation problem again, right? Where I'm just like, look, like it's not that I don't want to give you money. I think what you're building is great, but mm. maybe this is just not a venture company, right? And then yeah. kind of just go and explore, you know, other other means of, of financing. What What do you mean by maybe this is not a venture company? Do you just see often that um, science founders will come in and they say, hey, like, uh, I'm building this really cool thing, but like, you're just like, how does, how does that make any revenue in the future? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a little bit, and also like revenue in a certain timeline, right? I mm. mean, look, whenever, you know, venture funds are trying to like basically return their fund on like a handful of investments, because, you know, we also have to, you know, pay back our, our investors and our yeah. LPs, right? And so, you know, you have to be quite realistic um, in terms of like, 
within a certain fun life cycle, right? Like how quickly and how far do you think this business can can actually go? Which is, I think, then back to the the point of, you know, there's certain funds that just have longer time horizons um, mm. to support, you know, these more like deep science companies that just require that time. And so I think, yeah, it's that mismatch of, you know, yeah. yeah, for us, it's harder for us to do that um, just because of the way that our fund is structured um, and what kind of like our commitments to our LPs are. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually think that's somewhere where uh, VCs could could kind of improve in terms of, you know, sh- being transparent about the fund structure. And if it was displayed on every, you know, everyone's website, mm. um, because then you kind of know who to target and who to not, right? Otherwise, yeah. you're just wasting each other's time. Yeah. Um, why why wouldn't vcs be transparent about their fund structure is it is it beneficial not to be um not i mean my opinion is like like (laughs) no i mean i I actually totally agree that like you know if you are a bit clear actually and i think this is what um was was great when when i was at atomico was that like you know we are very clear that like look we're we're happy to invest in like more deep tech Mm. deep science companies and we did make you know investments in quantum and did a, you know, a few synthetic biology companies right and i think it was because um at the time right like we were very open to these longer timelines and we saw like the yeah. like how the returns could be could be great out of these types of companies and so as a firm we decided that you know we were we were open to this um and so i think you know for for firms that are more generalist or ones that are you know not explicitly um dedicating funds and capital there um that's probably why they don't want to advertise it right just because like yeah it, they may just may just be a bit more exploratory for yeah, them yeah. right which also kind of sucks for founders mm. because you just never know sometimes it could be super opportunistic that yeah. you you know run into a company or a founder that you really like um and you know you'll you make an investment and other times um you'll kind of look at a fund's portfolio and be like well looks like you've made investments in this space before but you know now yeah. in the fundraising conversation it doesn't seem like yeah. You want to wait that long. So it can be, it can be mm. very tricky. So Neil, what's the like most absurd experience you've had when talking to non-industry investors? I think, you know, we, we got very, well, I don't think it's absurd though. That's, um, yeah. But we got very unlucky in terms of when we started and, um, you know, every round since I, I suppose. So uh, because of Theranos and, um, yeah. you know, they're obviously a medical device. Uh, they were a medical device company testing blood. And so um, I think when it's non-industry specific um, investors, they tend to compare us to Theranos and they don't understand the, the differences difference. between yeah. us. And, you know, even if you show the validation, then there's just no point sometimes. As soon as someone has that um um, you know that those thoughts in their head it's there's, yeah there's other investors you just you know move on um i think when they're industry specific the good thing is that they know what to look for yeah and that that helps us i see so as soon as you say blood medical diet device point of care <laughs> they say theranos <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it happens yeah. quite often mm. yeah yeah and i think it's it's uh it's one of these things I think on, on the ventures that now I like having done this, um, that it's like sometimes there's a bit of like pattern recognition to a fault, right? Where like yeah. obviously, you know, it really helps to see and meet a lot of different founders because it does help you, right, with like pattern recognition of like certain industries, what to look for, what to watch out for. Um, but then yeah, you kind of get this this issue and mm. almost like a bias at a certain point, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, like 
pinprick blood testing company like point of care like oh yeah okay like this sounds too familiar um and you mm. almost like write off entire categories or like even like sometimes entire founder profiles right which is i think something that as an industry we, you need to be more mindful of yeah mm-hmm. yeah definitely and then moving into fundraising strategy um and particularly in medical devices right because i i i think it's like um this weird unexplored field in a way where um, traditional therapeutic investing, biotech investing is a little bit more established. We understand the timelines for returns. We understand the clinical development cycles there. It's very defined, right? It takes around 12 years to develop a new medication. We have our phases. Um, In a similar way, there are um, different stages to medical devices and different studies you need to do but the classification is not as simple, right? So how how does one go about fundraising um, when they are building out a medical device? Um, and how does it kind of sit with the current like therapeutic and just general tech investing? So I think like, I mean, hardware, again, like sometimes, you know, some funds will have a hardware investment that doesn't work out, right? And so all of a sudden, mm. like all hardware becomes you know, something that you don't want to touch um, because of, for whatever reason. Um, and so I think like when you are fundraising, it's I think what helps and actually what I wish we had done a bit more of as well is kind of um, being a bit more clear along kind of like, yeah, what the roadmap is, what the timeline is, like what could go wrong mm. and kind of then helping, you know, your investor, whether or not their industry, you know, they have the knowledge or are, um, are focused there or more generalist to understand kind of like what, is the actual risk you're underwriting, um, I think is is very helpful because, you know, we're not in it day in, day out. And also, again, this medical device company was like years ago um, that I was trying to map yeah. out what like our regulatory pathway was. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure it's changed a lot. Um, so even for me, right, it's always really helpful when I am talking to founders about it, kind of understanding, OK, like where do you see the actual risks? And then, of course, going away and, and doing some work myself and also kind of checking on that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I guess you, you learn what questions investors ask, um, you know, over time. So it's it's making sure you address those issues mm. in the you know in the first few conversations that you have with VCs. I think you know for, and it is about regulatory most of the time. Yeah. Um, not just for that initial application, but all the applications that you envision like coming next. Mm. Um. And also the manufacturing process, right? Scaling mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. those two elements are for, for hardware quite important. And so just showing that up front and showing them that you have a plan mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe even just getting that validated by a third party in terms yeah. of, you know, CROs or FDA consultants. Yeah. Um, that also, I think, gives um, gives a bit more um, validation, I suppose, to yeah. To yeah, definitely. And I think maybe then, I mean, coming back a little bit to like, you know, do you have to be like a subject matter expertise or like mm. clinician to do these things? I think like this is also where um, it gives a little bit of that confidence, right? Because like, you know, having gone through, you know, whatever ex- experience you've had in that field, it also gives you an advantage of seeing around corners a yeah. lot earlier, right? And so I think um, when you are asking about, you know, regulatory timelines it's like oh well look this is a risk but like i've seen this done before Mm. like i've i've helped someone do this or i've done it myself um also kind of helps you know me as an investor underwrite that risk yeah i agree um i i I think that 
it would be difficult for someone with no knowledge of this to figure out how to work out that regulatory landscape. And then also on top of that, um, you know, Neil, you mentioned the manufacturing and scaling process, but I think what we often see in traditional biotech companies is you don't really actually manufacture and scale yourself, right? Like you kind of get to, um, I don't know, phase two and then probably look for an exit. Um, Is it similar at all in medical devices or do you see more companies essentially um, doing that manufacturing scaling process themselves? So I can't, I guess I can't really, I don't know for every you know mm. other medical device company, but um, for for us because our tech is um, quite innovative and we're using um, you know specific designs and um, yeah. IP that we haven't that hasn't been manufactured before. It is something that we do have to develop ourselves. Yeah. And so for us, you know, we we're doing everything um, with robotics companies to automate yeah. uh, our our cartridge development, let's say, and uh, manufacturing. And so I suppose if we were to be acquired, the manufacturing processes would be acquired as well. Mm. Um, the, you know, there are certain elements of our device that we won't manufacture and that's just outsourced to other, you know, to existing companies. But that's why I think for us specifically, there is a risk in the manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you probably yeah definitely see people kind of like building out manufacturing themselves unless you know very early on, um, mm-hmm. you get investment from a strategic right. In which case, yeah. it's a lot of like co-development, um, and you know you can kind of lean on them a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but then of course you also run the risk that like when they make this investment with the potential idea in mind of acquiring in a few years, you know your cap table also looks very different. Um, and then I think you have to be ready right to kind yeah. of um be okay with either having a hard time with more traditional venture investors and just kind of going down the line of strategics or family offices. Neil, you've already raised, right? What uh, would you suggest in terms of approaching investors for people in a similar situation? Do you think that they should go for um, investors who invested in med tech before or um, prefer or go for a preference of like general tech or VC? So again, I think it's the um, you know the stage of the um, the company really. I in the early stages, you're not going to get in VC to to invest right in the mm. beginning, right? Um, when we weren't a university spin out, and yeah, um, when you don't have a physical product, um, you are really selling a vision. And I think Liv, you mentioned this bef- before this um, um, podcast, but um, it is about the team and it is about building those relationships. Yeah. And so I think angel investors and high net worths are the individuals to target right at the beginning. Um, then when you build that traction, you know, you're kind of checking the boxes off for VC investment yeah. along the way. And it's good to understand what VCs and uh, VCs look for early on yeah. so you can build that um, traction between, you know, b- before you start approaching them. Um, I, I've actually also noticed that um you know six seven years ago we have spoken to the vcs that uh we, we we're speaking to now and i think it's 
also important to actually keep them updated. We didn't mm. right at the beginning. Um, I think showing them your progress over that time and showing them how you're getting more VC ready, right? Um, that really mm. gives them confidence as well. Um, and reaching those milestones in a rapid time, I think, also helps. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I suppose angel investors first. Um, family offices is, I, I guess, very, you know, I, I suppose for family offices, it is more about generational wealth and um, they don't have to return their funds to 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 NLPs. Yeah. So I think if you do have an opportunity to find these family offices, then I think that's, you know, I, I think that's a great opportunity, whatever stage you are. I mean, Nicole, you did mention before that a lot of the times when you um, reject a company, I know, <laughs> sad. Uh, uh, when you reject a company, it's a lot to do with uh, does does a startup actually uh, need to raise venture financing? Like, are there alternative options that make more sense for the product they're building or the timelines they want? Um so, so when do you think that a company is VC ready, right? Like, what does what does that look like? Yeah, it really depends on like the the product and kind mm. of like um what what market they're going after and like what they're actually trying to like accomplish, right? Because I, I think um you know sometimes you can just build a very nice business um yeah and you know it doesn't have to be a large market. Right. And I mm. think like, again, like for us, which is why, you know, the whole size of the market thing is really important. Right. It's because you know, depending on the size of your fund, you may have to return, you know, like a few unicorns. Right. In order yeah. to kind of like, you know, pay back your your investors. And so um, I think that's kind of where, you know, that combination of understanding, you know, like how big is this market and like, is it big enough that like, you know, I think I can you know potentially return the fund if this is a, a great hit. Um, yeah. Also, like, you know, where are like the technical and like scientific risks and like depending on the stage of the company, you know, when I'm investing like obviously you know my appetite for, mm. for science risk at pre-seed now and, and seed with cherry and when I was, we were doing series eight atomic was super different um kind of understanding you know what is the actual science risk I'm underwriting yeah. here and then like also what is the commercial risk I'm underwriting are you like totally creating an entirely new market or are you just going after an existing market with like an even better technology right and so I think um Unfortunately, it's a little bit of like a combination of things that like yeah. help me determine whether or not this is like um a VC type of of company. Um, but yeah. I think also on that fundraising on that fundraising point too, in terms of like who are the um investors, I think depending on the category, like a lot of these computational drug discovery companies, right? Like I think when you look at some of the ones that have come out of Europe, like very early, um, but more of like generalist funds, right? Because you kind of are raising more and like you know computational side um mm. and it's more about like your pipeline your data access like how are you doing this um and of course you know when you kind of maybe get to series a series b it may still be a lot of these more like journalist investors who you know have spent more time in the space or who want to i guess build more of a portfolio there um and then of course as soon as you start building like your pipeline of drugs or maybe yeah. the devices at a certain point where you actually start getting into clinical um then you have the more traditional like medical devices yeah. or like pharma companies because they they then know how to value your business, right? I think like a um, traditional like biopharma investor mm. will have a harder time valuing a company that's just like more computational because they're like, well, where's your pipeline? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's also why it's important for founders like when you're building in these categories to understand like um, 
who like when those more traditional investors come yeah. in because then your cap table changes very differently right like, like the dilution that i think generalist funds and like tech <clears throat> sorry like tech investors are are used to um is actually lower right sometimes than like biopharma investors who come in and you know value your pipeline and all of a sudden take a huge you know percentage of your company um and so i think also thinking ahead a little bit and planning like hey i know these guys are going to have to come in at a later point um yeah. and so I'm going to prepare my cap table accordingly, make sure I have enough ownership as a founder. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think we've talked about, you know, this idea of science entrepreneurs also taking longer to develop the commercial acumen and to develop their stories and pitches. And Neil, you mentioned that there were investors you spoke to six, seven years ago who were maybe less interested back then, but more interested now. Um, I guess this is like an open question, but do do we get like a yes after an initial no? Um, because I don't know if you've had that where you maybe had an investor who knowed you in the earlier stages and who then invested after. And then Nicole, from your side, I guess, um, you know, you were at Atomico and Cherry. I don't know if you ever uh, met a founder who did not really know how to pitch their company and you were like, no, and then said yes later. Yeah, I, I suppose for us, um, I, feel, I feel like this is the same for many startups, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you do get a lot of no's in the beginning and they're following you or they've told you something specific that they want to see. And then once you have that, they'll invest. But have but, they actually? That's uh, the question. Yeah. No. No, yeah, yeah, see, because so. I feel like they do that, right? Like, yeah. like investors, they say like, no, but then they kind of want to follow what you're doing. Um, or like they, they, maybe they even say no, like 90% of the times they just like, don't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then like, and then they like, they find out from a press release that you're doing well. And they're like, oh, like, let's catch up. And you're just like, okay, well. Or you could read like, my, my yeah. monthly newsletter. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but like, have, have you in your experience actually given founder feedback where you're like, you don't know what you're talking about right now. I don't think this is a great fit. But then later on, um, see that they've developed and have invested. Have you have you actually seen that before? Um, so that hasn't happened. Hasn't happened for me. Um, yeah. And I think like it really just does depend as well, like how deep you go in your diligence. Like there yeah. are like there are certain companies that like, you know, I, I went with like we did a lot of homework. Right. And I think like yeah. ultimately, you know, through that, it was super positive the whole way through. And then kind of you get stuck at a point and you're like, OK, like actually like mm. for our risk profile and what we're willing to underwrite. Like, unfortunately, it took all that time for us to kind of get to this decision and get to this point. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's what makes it difficult. And I think like in those instances, what, you know, I do as a result is, I mean, you kind of just turn around, you share all your homework yeah. with someone right you're like look like i mean i don't need this information anymore it's probably more useful for you um yeah. and you kind of go and you're like hey look like it's not that it's not you know we don't like you or whatever it is it's yeah. just like this is just where we've hit a wall in our diligence and as a team like we're not comfortable with underwriting it at this point um and so you know it could be a matter of I don't know, mm. you know sign commercial contract or i don't know like finish your technical validation and, and maybe you know we can come revisit the conversation but i think mm. what makes it tricky too right in terms of like can you go back and get an investment from that investor is like look if you did hit a commercial milestone i mean then you probably are getting a lot of other interest right from yeah. other funds and so you may just not win, right? Like that yeah. that investment because then all of a sudden everyone else is super interested because they hit that commercial milestone, right? So um, maybe 
it's because you know you still for some reason or another don't think it's a fit for your portfolio um and maybe the risk profile is not right or maybe it is just like when it is time to revisit like the founder has a lot of options right and that's like great for the founder yeah yeah i can see that happening Mm. especially uh you know once you get fda approval yeah yeah um yeah, the tables kind of turn. Yeah, but even for like fo- you know folks that don't have to go by regular yeah. timelines, right? Mm. It's like you know it'd be great to see a little bit more traction. But I think you know as a venture investor, I mean this is the part of venture, right? Like you're here to underwrite yeah. the commercial risk, um, and so either you're happy to to take that on um, and come in and you know get access to this company, and you know but by the time they actually hit the commercial milestones, you're in early, right? Or or you're not comfortable with underwriting yeah. that, and maybe you you miss out. I do feel like there's like a cultural fit element to it. Like I I almost um, see fundraising as applying for a job in a way where I feel like um, when you go and speak to funds, they're actually assessing you on a little bit whether you fit into the fund, into the portfolio, into kind of like this community they're building. Um, and I almost feel like if it is a no, it rarely ever becomes a yes. And my hypothesis is that um, that's because the founder just does not fit into the portfolio. Mm. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think like um, I think every fund will have like a different view on what makes a great founder. Right. Mm. And it's like so subjective. So, of course, I think at every fund it'll be very different. Um, And I think it is just like accumulation of, you know, for all these different people who work at these funds, all these different investors, like what is their experience of what makes a good founder? Right. It's like, do you look for someone who um, is, you know, I don't know, very commercially minded? Do you want someone who's just like very aggressive at sales? Do you want someone who, um, you know, yeah, like is a bit more, you know, open to new ideas and like kind of, you know, changing their opinions based off of new information? Or maybe you don't, maybe you want someone super opinionated and building their product in their company, which is why they can drive it to whatever point. Um, So, yeah, I do think it is a little bit of, of figuring out, you know, for certain funds, right? Kind of like, what do they look for in founders? And I mean, it can vary, um, which is also why it's great to stay in touch. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I think even if, um, you know, we're, we're a medical device startup and we've come, you know, we've had several challenges along the way. Um, if I were to invest into medical device companies and, you know, specifically the founder, I would be looking at areas which, I already know are challenging Mm. and seeing if that person has that experience Mm. to get over those hurdles. Yeah. And so I think, you know, everyone has biases. But can you check yourself on them? Ah, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you have, I think you have to check yourself on that because like, you know, if it's, if it's a medical device company, right. And like, you know, a lot of the the rest of you know the partnership or like your team if like they're not used to that mm. profile the way that you pitch is going to be super different and like yeah. it's probably killer for whatever market you're selling into but like on the vc side maybe they're like oh well you know are they really going after those contracts are they going to like be very aggressive and like be able to sell and mm. you know like maybe that's just because again there's potentially like a bias of like well you know software founders sometimes or maybe even like consumer founders yeah. right like it's just a very different style um and so yeah i think you have to be able to kind of check yourself and think like hey for this market um like maybe this is the best persona for it and it's maybe not what we're used to seeing but that's fine Neil, do you find that in in your current portfolios that you sit in? Um, I mean, because 
I think for us, where we've had a very specific investor uh, like Nina Capital, um, pretty much all the founders in our portfolio are pretty similar. Like not even just mm. like what we're building, but like how we are and how we act. And like it means that we get along really well with one another. But it's it's a it was like a bit weird the first time we all met because everyone's like introducing what they do. And it was like, oh, we do AI and healthcare, basically, like everyone just does like kind of the same similar thing. Uh, I don't know if you found that in the portfolios you sit in. I I haven't. I don't think I've noticed it specifically. Mm. I, I feel like everyone does get on. Um, you are yeah. correct about that, but I think that's mainly because you know these we're, we're all kind of early stage. We're all yeah. going through the same problems that you know the same common problems. And so you're kind of growing together. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I guess um, I would maybe think there could be some similarities, but yeah, I, I don't have enough. Uh, enough information. Yeah. What, what do you think about the, the kind of cherry portfolio? I, and I know that it's not like specifically in healthcare, right? It's, it's like um, there's a mix of different founders. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, I mean, yeah, it's a good mix um, because we're, as a fund, quite generalist. And I think also historically, right, like when we first started, um, very consumer, um, being on marketplaces. Mm. um, And, you know, in in the last few years, there's definitely been a bit of a change, a lot more like B2B um, and, you know, different industries. Um, And so I think um, that's, that's I mean, that's a very good question. I actually haven't spent... um, since I've been at Cherry for a year and a half, yeah. I haven't actually been to like a full portfolio. Interesting. Um, and I haven't actually gotten to meet like yeah. every everyone together. Um, I mean, we will be having our like first portfolio founder mm. retreat offsite um, that I've attended at Cherry in a few weeks. So we'll see how that goes. Happy to, yeah. I guess I guess I'll I'll find out. We we can bring you back. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like this kind of mix of non-healthcare and healthcare companies like why do you think it's important for um these founders to mix together i feel like everyone's you know at different stages of their of their startup cycle mm-hmm. so you're kind of learning from different individuals that you know the stages that they're at even if maybe your first investment was at the same time as as in maybe the first investment from that specific vc was at the same time you are still kind of moving at different paces. Yeah. And so I kind of, I feel like it just benefits to have those people around you. Um, also in terms of different locations, different markets, it mm. does really help, um, you know, just on the admin side as well. Yeah. It's, just, it's just very beneficial. Uh, admin side in what way? You know, like legals, accounting and yeah. HR and, you know, all those kind of, Things that no one really talks about when you're pitching or yeah. uh, when you're talking to investors, um, but they are an everyday thing in terms mm. of the company, and I think that's why it's helpful. Yeah, I mean, just diversity of thought, right? Like, yeah. and yeah. kind of just learning from yeah other people who've done it so differently. Um, I think it's just super helpful. Um, yeah. to kind of try something very new and like you know you're so in the weeds of whatever you're doing uh, that sometimes you know something that's very obvious for someone else just be like oh. Totally new idea um, that might work really well. Interesting. And I, I wanted to move into fundraising hacks strategies as like a final kind of section. 
But uh, Nicole, do you think that founder referrals are the kind of number one thing that that appeals to you when you um, see a new company come into your email? And I'm I'm kind of saying that because I guess I've I think I read on Twitter that the single source of startup truth. Yeah, the single source of startup truth. But it's it, isn't it seen as like a bad thing if another VC that could invest in a company passes a company to you? So it's almost seen like why? Okay, there's two elements, right? If it's your VC, it just looks like okay, they're obviously selling this forward Mm -hmm. and then if it's another vc it might look like why would they not just invest so in that case if if we have to go by the referral method because let's say like outbound probably doesn't show many returns um then would it be best to get a founder referral um yeah i mean i think it's look i think um referrals either way are always super helpful um i think there's an for me, there's like two things that like I will do, right? Like one, mm. obviously, like referrals, you know, super happy to take a call. Um, and even if it is, you know, like another VC who could have invested and didn't, um, yeah. I think it's the reason is is really important, right? If it's like, oh, you know, I didn't yeah. get on with the founder. I mean, that is, like, <laughs> you know, no real kind of like implication yeah. on the business and how good it is. Um, or yeah. if it's just like, look, like, you know, the ticket is is too big and for mm. our fund, right? I mean, I, I think it really depends on like the rationale. If it's like, oh, the market's too small, then I'll be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I don't know. Um, unless I I know that market very well and I'm like I think you're wrong um, or it yeah. also I, you know I will, I will also be quite thematic right in terms of like where I want to look as well and so you know there are instances where I'll just like reach out to a company because I just happen to be spending a lot of time yeah. in this space and I'm like oh okay let me just go in and look for other founders um, and so I think yeah there's a, a bit of both um, but I also you know if I do get an inbound cold email and it is you know it happens to kind of match mm. thematically what I'm, I'm spending time on um yeah that's not going to stop me from taking a call i i mean i i generally think the the referrals do help yeah um you know if, if you're reaching out um using cold emails i it does work but um, you have to find the right person in the yeah. friend yeah. yeah and then you have to send it you know multiple times and sometimes i found that if you email as well as add on linkedin that kind of helps at least gauge um yeah. at least get their attention but um yeah that doesn't necessarily mean they'll respond and say no yeah because i think the referrals it is really helpful in navigating companies too like sorry like funds um because like you know i was i was catching up with a founder a friend mm. of mine i should say friend also a founder um and you know he was also telling me you know like who are some actually like hardware investors right like that yeah. that you know and that you like in the space and i think there are some funds where you know not again non obviously because it's just not everywhere on their website like they're not shy of that right and it's like oh like i know this because i will talk Mm. to this other investor about it and they will tell me right like oh hey Mm. i am looking for hardware investments or i am looking for an investment in a certain area yeah and you know we don't have a blog post about it and so no one knows right and so i think that's also why it's just helpful in terms of navigating because if you were to email someone else at that fund and it's just not the right person like you again you just may um yeah be be passed over unfortunately yeah I, i i also think it's really helpful um when you get a referral and, you know, you don't fit that VC's uh, thesis, mm. but you can then ask other questions because you were referred and um, generally they can give you feedback. And I think that helps where yeah. someone who you just, you know, reached out to, they're not as open as, or as willing to give you the feedback. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because uh, as a founder, you basically have like two 
types of product market fit you need to uh, achieve, right? You have like your actual company's product market fit and then you have like the product VC. market fit to VCs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have, have you had, a, you know, ever seen a company where, you know, that team and what they're building just has like the perfect fit for fundraising and like it's like a product market fit, yes, for the company, um, even if even if like their product is not a product market fit. I mean, I guess the Theranos example is a great one here, right? Where like, you know, yeah. it's that big promise and you have someone, you know, who can tell a really great story and, mm. you know, is a very good fundraiser. Yeah. Um, it didn't work out. Yeah. So it, it seems like what you're saying is essentially that that great storytelling kind of correlates with being good at fundraising. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's like, you know, how do you spin the story and like, you know, are mm. you hitting on like the right trends as well? Right. Cause also, I mean, during the pandemic, right. Yeah. I mean, like, is anyone still on clubhouse? <laughs> right. Um, as, as an example, right. Of a product yeah. that at the time, like great VC market fit for this product. And I think, you know, it, it is a really good mm. product and like everyone loved it. Um, but I think also with the, the timing of the market behind it really helped. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how do you kind of like, tell your story in the situation of the, the current times? So I think we regularly have, you know, internal conversations as mm. well. We, and just like you said, we, we're always thinking about, I guess, uh, fit for VCs as well as the traction where we need for, for market entry as well. And so um, when, you know, we've been around quite a while, so it's like yeah. we kind of know what, VCs are looking for and so we are making sure that we are developing those yeah. um, you know data around those points and then we that's how we communicate to VCs or communicate to investors and um, at the same time you know I, I say this multiple times in, internally is that you know when something specifically for a VC you have to balance it out because we also don't want to slow down progress just because we're trying to meet some yeah. expectations for, mm -hmm. for investors. So it's, yeah, it's just, you, you figure out a story by learning really by all the, the years of fundraising you've done previously and mm -hmm. feedback. Yeah. And I think like maybe the, the benefits sometimes sort of more of like these deep science companies or, you know, medical mm -hmm. device or in, in health and in, in general, is that like, I mean, the, the problem that you're solving um, is probably very real um you're not just kind of yeah. like layering something on top of you know another piece of technology to make it like incrementally better right and so yeah. and whereas you know those things may have really good market trends behind them they're trends right and so i think mm. you're you know working on longevity or like you know something that's like quite universal to you know everyone's human experience um then i think also like the it, it is just more about you know how are you developing like yeah. on that journey and it's more of like a yeah that just resonates with everyone yeah, well, I guess there's like a really fine balance between hitting on the right trends mm -hmm. and uh, and then just like utilizing a lot of buzzwords, right? Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't know how you feel about that. Like, I'm sure you've seen like a lot of companies in this current climate just like 180 to Gen AI. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that whole situation. Yeah, I mean, like, I think whenever there's a, a lot of buzzwords, I mean, look, I mean, mm. they're very guilty of this as well, right? Yeah. Um, because that's kind of the language, again, the language mm. in which we kind of, like, live. Um, and so I think it, it is a bit of a, a watch out and, like, you know, you have to, I guess, really dig in, right? And kind of figure mm. out what are you actually doing? Um, and, like, is this actually 
feasible technically um, and then on the commercial side, then work out um, what is this business and what does this product actually do? Um, I think it just requires a little bit more of like dissecting and spending time and understanding like, why are you actually doing this? Like yeah. what is actually the problem and how are you actually doing it? Not just taking it for, for face value. I also feel like it's easier on a software side to kind of pivot to a trend, right? But then if you are developing a regulated medical device, um, how exactly can you capitalize on current trends when you're when you're trying to fundraise and storytell? I suppose, I mean, all hardware these days do, do have software components. And mm. I think you can innovate on, on that aspect or you can actually apply to grants as well. Yeah. Because you do, you know, there are other opportunities using your technology that yeah. could fit the current trends or, you know, I guess grants are kind of long-term as well. So it's thinking a bit more about the trends coming in the future. Yeah. And so it's, it's yeah, finding those opportunities and um, building on them, really. Awesome. And I'm just going to ask a final question. Um, what's the one piece of advice you would give to someone who wanted to start a med tech company today? I would say... Um, Try, I know it's really difficult, but try um, and map out your, you know, from from where you are right now all the way to commercialization, like uh, until you're on the market and map it out and try and understand the, the risk associated with each stage. And whilst doing that, then you'll be able to see, you know, who you should get on your advisory board, who you should start networking with to reduce the risk at each of those points. Mm. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, definitely. And I, um, I would just talk to like, I mean, time bound, like how long you do this for, but like talk to like everyone, um, talk to people like consumers, users, like, you know, potential partners, like VCs, um, yeah. and like even like employees that you would love, um, to hire, um, just talk to everyone, get their view on it. And I think like it just, again, with diversity of thought, it just helps you like figure out exactly why you're doing this as well. Um, cause people will ask you, right. And if you're also trying to convince people to invest in you, join you, um, partner with you, like you have to know why you're doing this and so i think the more people you talk to um the the clearer that becomes yeah i think i think that also helps in terms of fundraising as well because mm. the you know the more um transparent you are with advisors sometimes they you know will maybe invest and you need those yeah. kind of investors right at the beginning 